Today's healthcare can be confusing, frustrating, and at times downright scary. Here to help with clearing up the confusion, putting an end to the frustration, and making it a lot less scary. Here from Los Angeles are your hosts, Eric and Roy, on the Informed Patient Radio Show. Welcome to the Informed Patient Radio Show, and we are your hosts, Eric and Roy. This is the show where we share valuable information that can help educate, inform, and empower anyone to better navigate the healthcare system. On today's show, we have guest Elizabeth Davidson, who is the current clinical administrative supervisor for case management of the City of Hope in Duarte, California. Elizabeth has been involved in case management for close to 10 years. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Hi, Eric and Roy. I'm really glad to be here. Welcome to the show, I'm Elizabeth. I'm so excited. Well, we're, thank you. We're, you're welcome. We're extremely excited to have you on the show today. Yes, thank you and welcome. So, Elizabeth, thank you. I'd like to, to start out uh, with the show, which how we normally do, to ask you a little bit about yourself and your, your background, how you got into case management and maybe nursing to begin with. If you could give us a few highlights, that would be great. Okay, well, I'll just uh, start. When I was in high school, I was in a pre-med program, and my plans were to be a medical doctor. I did go to USC for two years, and um, I got married and decided to take some time off and then go back to school because then I got pregnant. And um, after I had my baby, I didn't want to be, I don't know, it seemed like the career for a doctor would take so long, so I decided to go into nursing, and that's when I got my nursing degree. I went to Los Angeles Trade Technical College and got my nursing degree and passed the boards and became an RN. Then um, I started working at Cigna. I worked in the OBGYN clinic. From there, I went to Cedar sinai I worked um, on research uh, for preterm labor. And um, I've worked uh, several jobs as an inpatient, um, as a staff RN in med surge. And sometimes uh, I would take on, like, a registry job, and I would work in different hospitals and work on various units, including... OBGYN, PEDS, MedSurge, labor and delivery, um, psych, uh, rehab. I wanted to see what, what it was that I wanted to do. And um, eventually I went into case management. I started at White Memorial as a brand new case manager. And within two years, I was the interim director. Um, when the uh, director left and they chose me, I was one of the newest case managers, but I had learned a lot in two years about case management, and um, I discovered that I really enjoyed leadership. So that's when I started pursuing my leadership career, and I went to City of Hope. I was there for three years, and um, I, I got an opportunity at Northridge to become an assistant manager for case management. So I maintained my job at City of Hope as a per diem staff member, and I worked on the weekends there. And I worked full-time as an assistant manager. And then there opened up a second supervisor's position at City of Hope. So naturally, I applied, and Brenda Thompson hired me as the supervisor for case management um, three years ago. Okay, wow. Well, it definitely sounds like you <laughs> had the the well-rounded experience to, to take on the, the job that you 
that you've taken on at City of Hope. Yes, yes. I was able to see all the aspects of inpatient as well as outpatient and all its various uh, levels of care and all of the different um, units in each hospital setting. So it really gave me a good background for my position today. Okay. Well, you know, um, there are, as you know, there are different types of case managers. You have uh, case managers that are inpatient, case managers, some that are what they call outpatient case managers. And then there's other, of course, several other types of case managers from the insurance companies and so on. And then yes. even even the hospitals are different too. So City of Hope is not necessarily the same as uh, working at Northridge Hospital or White Memorial. So could you explain some of that and, and what some of the duties for, uh, say, a case manager that uh, it, that it is? Well, at uh, City of Hope, case management is very complex. Uh, we set up uh, services for patients uh, when they go home. And a lot of our patients, as you know, are have cancer and are very, very sick. Um, but nowadays, the insurance are not paying much for the patients to be inpatient. Once their acute care, um, once their acute care needs are, are met, then everything needs to continue on either in another in another setting, such as a long-term acute care, a skilled nursing facility, a rehab or um, rehab for physical therapy and occupational therapy and speech therapy, or they can go home and continue the services with home health um, because a lot of times the patient, for example, will come in with a fever and a, um, they'll come in with a fever and um, they'll do cultures and then find the bacteria and see what antibiotic is sensitive to that particular organism and then um, set them up with the correct IV antibiotic. Well, they'll start the first dose at the hospital, but then they want the patient to continue for two more weeks. Well, we can't keep the patient in the hospital for two more weeks, so we have to set them up at home with home health for IV antibiotics. A lot of these patients have chronic pain, and sometimes their pain just increases as the tumor grows, so they often need to go home on a pump. Um, that will deliver their their analgesic or their pain medication. So we have to set them up with that as well. And on top of that, some of them may be dehydrated, and we'll have to set them up with IV fluids. So the patient has a lot more needs than a community uh, a, a normal community patient that will go to Northridge or um, White Memorial with uh, congestive heart failure or asthma. We have a lot of chronically ill patients, and their needs are much greater. So it does take uh, a lot to set up someone to go home with these services because we have to figure out what the insurance will cover, what uh, companies or vendors are contracted with that particular insurance. So it gets a little tricky. And with the Medicare insurance, we have these competitive bidders that have won the bidding. So if you have to set up a patient to go home on um, G2 feedings and they live in Orange County, but they're going to stay in Monrovia for a week at a hotel because they need to come back for a follow-up appointment, the competitive bidding rules state. So you have to use the company that services the area where the patient resides, which is Orange County. And that can get a little tricky for the case manager sometimes. So it's a lot of... Um, it's very difficult it does, to set someone up and set them up with all the services. 
It sounds it sounds very difficult. Uh, matter of fact, it sounds like there's a obviously a lot of uh, discharge planning that goes into this. And so, who's primarily in charge of say the discharge planning? Is it the doctor, the case manager? Uh, do the, do well, the... we do we do involve everyone in the discharge planning, including the patient and their family or the caregiver that's designated. We have to include them in the discharge planning, but we also have to inform them and instruct them about um, the insurance and the limitations with the various types of insurance. But we do give them freedom of choice, and we start planning from day one. So on day one, when the patient is admitted, we, the case manager will meet with the patient and um, initiate an assessment. And I, I believe at City of Hope, the assessment even is done pre admission where we have the outpatient case management facilitators that will gather the data and document it in the chart so that the case manager in the inpatient setting um, can already see what has been discussed, what has the patient been instructed on, and then go from there. And, um, you know, the discharge plan may change as the patient may improve or may worsen. And we also have the doctors and the nurse practitioners they round on the patients, and they, um, we also have interdisciplinary rounds where we have a group of people. Um, for example, in the urology service line, we have um, they have walking rounds, and they have the, the surgeon, the attending, uh, the uh, physician assistant, or a nurse practitioner. They'll have the case manager. They have a nurse coordinator. They have a social worker. If we we can involve the physical therapist, we also do that, but not usually for the urology patients. But we have everyone involved um, because, for instance, um, for when we're looking at a patient and we're trying to find out what medical equipment the patient will need when they go home, we ask the questions in the beginning, but we also need a physical therapy eval evaluation so that they can um, identify the needs of the patient and what the patient can do and they document that in the note and uh, or, and communicate with the case manager so they usually will determine if the patient will need a walker or a wheelchair or if they need a bedside commode or a shower chair and all of those um, um, needs they identify them and document it and communicate to the case manager and that's Basically, everybody is involved in discharge planning, but we're the ones that set up all the services once we gather all the information and speak to the different uh, disciplines and um, collaborate with everyone. Okay. Um, it sounds like quite an undertaking, which obviously I know that, that it is. But uh, So with your other professional supports, let's say uh, outside agencies, uh, that kind of thing, do they, do they get involved also with some of this discharge planning, and do they meet patients in the hospitals, or how does that work? Well, we do. When we have a hospice eval, for instance, uh, we will communicate that to the um, patient. We'll, they have the discussions, the doctors and the nurse practitioner will discuss with them, and then um, the case manager will go in there to let them know about freedom of choice and give them a list of options, and then um, once the patient selects, sometimes they want to see and speak to three different companies uh, or vendors, and sometimes they already know what they want, or sometimes they just defer to the case manager. What we do is we uh, we fax all of the medical information, including the order, and then they send a representative, which is usually um, 
an LVN or an RN to come in and speak to the patient so that they can sign the consent if they agree to go on hospice. So we do have an on-site evaluation. Um, when it comes to referring someone to rehab, we also do the same. We fax the information and we have we contact the liaison and they come in to see the patient and evaluate them on site. Um, that gives a better and clearer picture picture as to the needs of the patient. And uh, we do the same for the long-term acute care patients. A lot of the needs that are, um, a lot of the patient care needs that are um, done at the inpatient setting can continue on in a long-term acute care setting. So they could stay there for like up to three weeks. Oh, um, we also have those uh, evaluations done on site. I see. And uh, so when it comes to family support, uh, what's, what is your experience with the, the families? Are they, are they generally pretty supportive of the patients? Or I guess it probably just depends on the patient. And, and how does some of that work with uh, what kind of options and challenges do you see with that? Um, there are many patients that have plenty of family support. Sometimes um, they have the room full of family members in there. And it gets a little bit complicated because different people have different wishes or um, they they become a little bit, they can be a little bit demanding. Um, but we really always try to designate one specific person that we can speak to so that they can communicate with the case manager and then go back and tell the rest of the family members because we can't, I mean, we don't have that much time to speak to every single family member and and follow each one of their wishes because they all have different thoughts. Sure. So um, we do have a social, we do have a social work department. They work separately from us. They're in, under a different uh, leadership, but they work uh, collaboratively with us. And as soon as we identify, there may be some family dynamics that we want them to look at. Uh, we will contact them right away, give them a brief summary of what's going on. And they're very supportive. They'll come and see the patient every day while they're in the hospital and continue. Um, we'll continue the social work um, consults um, in the other, in the next level of care, whether the patient goes to a skilled nursing facility, we'll have them report off to the social work in the skilled nursing facility, or um, we'll order a social work consult in the home health setting. Okay. Uh, we also have a biller resource the family center patient and family center where they can go. It's a place where there's a lot of literature and um, they can learn about the disease um, and how to manage the disease and they can, um, they have computers available for the family members or the patients wow. and it's a great resource center and they have a lot of different classes that go on. We also have the positive image center. Um, it's a place where patients can go and get their hair cut. And those patients that may be ready and if they're losing a lot of hair and they want to um, uh, get a wig, they also have dif different wigs that they can try on. And, you know, they have scarves and beautiful things that they can wear to in increase their image Elizabeth and make it positive. <clears throat> Sounds good. Elizabeth, this is Eric. I do have a question. Can we back up a little bit and let's talk – can we talk about the first interaction – uh, between the patient and the family and the case manager. Can you speak a little bit 
about the the assessment that goes on when the case manager first meets the patient. Can you kind of walk us through what the case manager uh, is there to do and what the case manager is looking for in terms of the assessment? What is he or she trying to assess basically at that time? Okay, so when the patient um, comes in to City of Hope and is assigned a room, the case manager will go in and um, before the patient, before the case manager sees the patient, she'll look at the history and physical okay. and uh, look at past visits and um, will kind of get familiar with the case and get yeah, familiar get with familiar the patient with and the, the history. Case. Exactly, thank right. you. It's okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, it's like doing a little research. Right. Because you don't want to go in there not not knowing their disease and you know what's been going on with right. what they were in for the last time and yeah. Um, so then when the case manager is um, goes to see the patient, um, you know we always will notice if somebody's in the room with them or if they're by themselves. That mm-hmm. speaks uh, a lot as to the support because most most patients will have someone there at their side, but you know there's some. Patients that have been dropped off and then they're been dropped off to the evaluation and treatment center and then get admitted and they're all alone and throughout the whole time they're all alone. So, you know, that that's, that's a big um, giveaway right. that their family support is not there. But when we do uh, gather the information for the assessment, we're looking at, um, we'll ask questions as to who they live with, how many people live in the home, if it's uh, one story or two story because of their getting weaker and they can't go upstairs and that's where their bedroom is, we might want to need to order, you know, we might want to think about ordering a hospital bed if the patient qualifies. Okay. Um, and we also want to find out what equipment they have there already. And um, in terms of support, we want to know who the caregiver is, who will provide transportation. Um, some patients don't even have uh, someone that can come pick them up. Um, when it's time for them to go home. So that seems to be a big barrier uh, for discharge sometimes. And uh, we do offer, um, if the patient doesn't qualify for, for an ambulance transport, we have um, we can order a wheelchair van or the social worker can offer stipends to pay for a taxi if the patient is able to ambulate into a taxi and get out of the taxi safely. Okay. Um, so, so, Let's talk a little bit about barriers. Uh, you, you mentioned barriers. Uh, can you, uh, like, say, uh, I would imagine a barrier could be if somebody, again, doesn't have any transportation or maybe is pretty sick, maybe going back to a residence that has no real readily available caregiver and such. The case, I would imagine a case manager can get pretty involved and help uh, identify resources, correct? Yes. Um, we do we do call the social worker to come in and help with those resources because they have all of the list of caregivers um, that they can offer to the patient. Right. Um, but we also look at maybe changing the setting. Maybe the patient is not ready to go home if there's not if it's not a safe discharge and there's no caregiver available. Sometimes we will um, get. Sometimes we'll have to pay for a caregiver and send them up in the village, which we have available. But the requirement for someone to go to the village is if mm. they live 60 miles away or more, and they must have a caregiver. So mm. sometimes we will um, make an exception, even if they don't live more than 60 miles 
away. And if they need to stay close to City of Hope for future follow-up appointments or they need to come back for infusion or they need to um, just be nearby, um, we can do that. Um, another thing we can also think about if the patient qualifies, the patient can go to a skilled nursing facility for at least two weeks until the caregiver issue is resolved. Sometimes it's just that a family member is out of town or someone's going to come, but they're not here yet, and they didn't know they were going to be discharged so soon. That seems to be uh, a surprise sometimes for our patients, even though we discuss and we write the discharge date on the whiteboard, uh -huh. and we let them know this is a tentative date for your discharge. Sometimes they just don't plan it, and they just don't have someone to come pick them up on that day. Well, you know, I, I know that one of the challenges too, Elizabeth, uh, is uh, like say if it's the village or the skilled nursing facility, for example, and also whether the insurance covers for some of these places um, where a patient might go, like the skilled nursing facility or another type of rehab. Yes, it's a, it's very challenging when the village is full, and so what we do is we also um, ex we can get a room at the extended stay for City of Hope patients at a reduced price. Okay. So that, we do that have helpful. that option. Okay. And um, when there's a challenge with the skilled nursing facility, um, we just have to expand the search. A lot of patients want to stay near City of Hope or near their home. But if, that, if we can't get a bed available at one of those, then we have to expand the search and to... Um, other areas. Um, but we do work closely with the skilled nursing facility near City of Hope. Uh, it's called Ramona Nursing and Rehab. Mm. And they do uh, work with us closely. They send their um, RN staff to come and learn how to take care of a pleurit catheter, for instance, or how to care for the hematology patient after a transplant. They learn about um, graft versus host disease and other common side effects from the transplant so that they can uh, manage the City of Hope patients. And they do accept a lot of our patients um, with Medicare, Medi-Cal, and the private insurance. Yeah, Elizabeth, can we talk really quick? But let's let's. That's a very interesting subject when it comes to skilled nursing facility. Uh, let, can we briefly just talk about uh, how one actually qualifies for a stay at the skilled nursing facility? Because it's, it's my understanding that uh, for different insurances, there's different qualify, uh, qualifying criteria. So I was wondering if you can briefly talk about that. Okay, in order for a patient to qualify to go to a skilled nursing facility, they must have a skilled need. And okay. the skilled needs are physical therapy, mm -hmm. IV antibiotics. Okay. Um, let me see. Physical therapy, IV antibiotics, um, pain management. Okay. And a combination of those. So, um, wound care. Okay, wound care. So, so anything yeah. that uh, I believe anything that uh, it requires the treatment by a licensed professional, like a licensed nurse, like for wound care, IV therapy, and stuff like that, and or physical Correct. therapy, occupational therapy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. not all. I I believe not all uh, insurances are created equal. There are different uh, requirements for different insurances for in terms of meeting criteria. Is that correct? 
Yes. Well, they're supposed to follow the, the criteria, but some okay. insurance, uh, private insurances will deny a patient to go to a skilled nursing facility if they feel the patient can go home and get the same therapies okay. done at home. Right. And it's true. Home health um, also requires skilled needs in order to send a licensed uh, person to go to the home. Right. So if they could do it at home at a cheaper rate and because they're watching their dollars, they will not approve a skilled nursing facility. And that's a big challenge for us because we, you know, the patient is very weak um, and needs uh, physical therapy more than two or three times a week. The, the insurance, sometimes they don't want to send the patient just for physical therapy. But if it's wound care and physical therapy, then they will give us a bed. Uh, what, one of the... One of the things, too, that uh, I wanted to ask you, Elizabeth, uh, on the, say, the challenging of uh, discharge planning would be if, say, for example, if you had a, a, a homeless patient, uh, that must come up once in a while where, uh, the, does the social worker get more involved with that or is that? Uh... Yes, the social worker gets involved with the um, homeless patient and they have sent the patient to a shelter before. We don't have a lot of homeless, um, but we've had. Um, I don't know, a couple of years, I, I'm not a whole lot. I mean, we used to have a lot of homeless when I was at White Memorial, and the social workers would send them to a shelter. But at the shelter, if you ever been by downtown, they're horrible. Yeah. And you send a patient over there, they, they can only stay like that one day or two, and then they're on their own. It's really bad. Wow. Okay. I know that's definitely a, a, a big challenge. Um, there's also one of the things I don't want to forget to talk about um is a there's a thing called the three midnight rule, and I think a lot of a lot of patients they come in they think, well, gee, what's what's the problem? I should be able to. I've been here three or four days, but maybe they're not admitted as a full in inpatient. Maybe they're oh, under observation, and what what is that? Yeah. Okay, so Medicare um, has changed their guidelines, and now it's called the two midnight rule. Two midnight rule. So it's two, um, but you're confusing it probably with the three midnight rule where the patient needs to be in an acute care setting three midnights before they can be transferred to a SNF or yes, a rehab. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's yeah, that's that's one rule that's been in place for a long time. But recently we've had the two midnight rule. And um yes, that confuses the heck out of a lot of people. Right. So if you're a Medicare patient and you come into the hospital and the doctor anticipates that you're gonna stay more than two midnights because of what's going on in your condition, um, and you do meet criteria to stay in the hospital more than two midnight, then you are, um, you, they will make you inpatient. So you'll stay in the hospital and everything is covered fully. But if you come into the hospital and they anticipated that you're going to stay two midnight, but miraculously you got better in one, after one midnight, so you didn't stay the full after two midnights, then they have to change the status from inpatient to observation, mm. and that's called Code 44. Yeah. And what happens is that now your services will be billed under Medicare Part B, and you'll have to sign a document that states that you acknowledge that you're under observation status now, and um, you will be released, but you will be um, responsible to pay the 20%. Okay. Of the co-payment and then the, for Medicare Part B. And then the that's, skilled, that's the, 
Go ahead. And then if and then if you come in and they know because you're just dehydrated or you have um, abdominal pain and they're just going to run a lot of tests and observe you and you're going to stay anticipate you're going to stay less than two midnights, they automatically put you under observation. Right. And you'll be paying the twenty percent. Yeah. But sometimes it's not clear. The doctor has no idea how long you're going to stay, what's going on. So a lot of times they'll put the patient under observation and then switch it to inpatient when they find out, you know, what's going on. They do cultures and the patient actually meets criteria to stay in the hospital. And then that's that's probably the best scenario. They should start off observation and change to inpatient if Mm -hmm. they're unsure. Right. Rather than make them inpatient and switch them the other way, that just causes more confusion for everyone. Sure. And then the skilled nursing facility is not going to accept for admission unless you have the, the those midnights that you've met their criteria because they're not going to get paid by Medicare. Is that correct? correct? Yeah. Yes. You have to do the right – you have to put the patient into the right status, and you have to do the code 44 and, and get – uh, the patient's signature and let the patient know before the patient leaves. Otherwise, um, you know, Medicare can look at it as fraud if mm-hmm. you're trying to bill as an inpatient and they only met for observation. Okay. Now, but- let me ask another question uh, that maybe um, patients and their families are not completely aware of. Another job duty for the case managers is to also – uh, keep the health plans up to date about the progress of the patient, and you also have to try to actually qualify the stay. Uh, yeah. You know. Uh, w- you know, using certain guidelines. Can you maybe briefly just talk about that too? Yes. Okay. For Medi-Cal and Medi-Cal, Medicare and Medi-Cal, which are the government payers, mm-hmm. we use Interqual, okay. and it's a guideline that helps us determine whether the patient needs inpatient or observation. Okay. And basically, it just, um, you know, it's listed under diagnosis, and then you click on that, right. and um, it'll it'll uh, space it'll display certain items, and if the patient needs both items, for example. For infection, if the patient is getting uh, blood cultures and, and mm-hmm. takes at least two days to get those results back, the patient will meet if they're on an anti-infective. That's an example. Yeah. Um, and uh, for the insurance, the private payers, we do interqual on the first day, which right. is on admission. Mm-hmm. And um, after that, what, basically what we do is we send out reviews to the case managers for the insurance. Right, and they re- and they look at that information, and that uh, should explain why the patient is still here, and that they need to be in the inpatient status. Both the case managers on the insurance side and the case managers on the inpatient side usually know what makes the patient need based upon interqual criteria, but they don't actually send the interqual or do an interqual for the subsequent days. Right, they only do it on the day of admission. The same is for. Um, Medi-Cal. Medi-Cal will pay us based on the fact that the patient will be here and is um, meets criteria to be here for the first day, and mm-hmm. then they'll give us a, a certain payment for that uh, reason. Okay. Also, I want to talk a little bit about uh, durable medical equipment, such as walkers, wheelchairs, and uh, you did mention a hospital bed. Now, it's my understanding that patients don't automatically qualify for these items. Uh, they do have to meet criteria. Is that correct? That is very correct. 
uh, hospital beds, you know, they have to uh, have certain documentation um, and meet the criteria for a hospital bed. It's not as easy as before. Right. It, the patient must have to be, you know, at a 45-degree angle. And um, when if they're having G2 feeding, you know the criteria for that. Mm. It's very, very uh, specific. And uh, for shower chairs, for example, no insurance covers shower chairs yet. We, the mm-hmm. doctors order shower chairs on almost everybody. <laughs> and we always tell them, you know, we'll give them a phone number. They can contact the durable medical equipment person. Okay. Right. Or sometimes we'll have the person contact the patient. But I'd rather just give the phone number to the patient and they can, maybe they don't want to get it after they find out <laughs> it's not covered. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, so. But basic, yeah, even for yeah. a walker, it's, uh-huh. like, it's getting really strict with everything. Right. So basically they're going to have to meet the criteria set forth by like Medicare or usually Medicare standards, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And they're very strict guidelines. And um, for G2 feedings, it's very strict too. Like the mm-hmm. other day, we wanted to set up feeding for a patient that weighed 90 kilograms, which um, they wanted to give him over 2,200 calories. I think 2,400 calories. Oh, of longevity for a 90 kilogram patient, and they said unless they could demonstrate the patient has lost a substantial amount of weight, he will not qualify, huh. or the calorie requirement will have to be lowered. Right, I think and it's so like 2,000. I think it's 2,000 yeah, calorie it's limit, right? 2,120 or some yeah. odd number, yeah. yes. And we were like, really? Okay, yeah. so the yeah. doctor had to recalculate everything in oh, a couple yeah. of days, and right. then the patient met. It was like really, really... Now, difficult. Right. Families and patients, I do believe, can find out for themselves, too, about the criteria for almost everything, including oxygen requirements, I think, on the CMS websites. And there's plenty of information yes. on the Internet nowadays. Yes. I think it's public information on how they uh, – now, we'd like to encourage uh, a lot of the families and patients, and uh, even before they come into the hospital, of course, we always advocate that patients get as informed as possible before they even uh, even have an inkling in their brain about being a patient. So that's what we're, we're all about yeah. here at the Informed Patient Radio it's Show. It's complicated enough for yeah. us as right. case managers. I can imagine <laughs> being, you know, an older patient sure. with not much support and not even Internet access. That's why I'm glad we have the Baylor Resource Center for our family. Absolutely. And I'd like um, to encourage everybody to always check out the CSMS, CMS website or center's for Medicare and uh, Medicaid services, um, they do have a lot of information. Also, is it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Elizabeth, uh, a case manager that's attached to the case or anything can also uh, print out those that criteria as well and hand it to the uh, patient and their family so they can see for themselves. Is that correct? Yes, we could do that. And uh, we yeah. go to Medicare.gov, uh-huh. um, and there you can um, look at um, – all the information that's available for the patient. Very good. This uh, is kind of a short summary of the, say, the case manager. The The way that I see it, and if you agree with me or there's something else you would want to add, I see the, the hospital case manager as the advocate for the patient and yes. for the family, where a lot of, a lot of times... Uh, you know, if the patient and the family want to stay and they don't think they're ready to go, they think that you're kicking them out of the hospital. And oh, it's yeah. really that just, it's just that they're not meeting the criteria and the insurance is not going to pay. 
And the case managers and the people involved are really doing everything that they can for the the patient and the family. I think sometimes they don't get that. Sometimes a lot of times they do, but sometimes they don't. And um, yeah, so and want- the same with the doctors. The doctors uh, will seek out a case manager when they have a very complicated discharge uh, of very complicated patients with discharge. They don't even know where to start. Yeah, and they they will seek out our help, but. Other times, well, we're trying to get a hold of them to see if they could document a little bit better so that we can understand why the patient still needs to remain in the hospital. They don't even answer our pages sometimes, but that's Absolutely. probably because they're in surgery. Yeah, no, I hear you. <laughs> but, yeah, it's very, it's very, um, we are patient advocate first as any nurse. Uh, we know that, and um, we do have a lot of challenges. We um, deal with a lot of um emotional people sometimes you know it's it's not the best time the end of life stage is very difficult to deal with some people are still in denial and some people sure. are more accepting and you have everybody's at a different stage and so you have to try try to figure out what stage they're in how to approach who to approach and what to say sometimes it's very difficult yeah. and i understand that um, as a supervisor, I always support the case managers on the inpatient setting because I know how tough it can be in their seats. Yeah, I've been in their right, seats, and right. I'll sit in their seats when I have to. <laughs> right. Um, so okay, it's it's not an easy job. Yeah. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. You've been a great uh, a great guest. We're out of time, but we'd like to uh, probably ask you to come uh, again on the show. Would you be game for that? Sure. All right. Great. Okay. Again, I'm going to thank you on behalf of our audience and myself and the show. Thank okay. you so much for for being on the show. And, and Elizabeth, you're welcome. This is this is Roy. I also would like to thank you for being on the show. You've been a really fantastic guest, and I think you've really helped us put a lot of great information out there for for our listeners. And uh, anyway, thanks again. So okay, thank you. Very welcome. It was my pleasure. Okay. 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 Well. Bye. Folks, that's it uh, for this episode, and uh, stay tuned next time where we, where we will continue to share valuable information for you and your loved ones. For more information regarding the show, our guests, and more about us, please visit informedpt.com and like us on Facebook. We also invite you to tell your friends and family about the show. So until next time, please take care. You have been listening to the Informed Patient Radio Show with Eric and Roy. For more information, please visit us at informedpt.com. Tune in next time for more information regarding the healthcare system and how it affects all of us.